In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have a super exciting episode. We're going to talk about some of the really terrible arguments that have been made against student loan forgiveness by some, by mostly Republicans, but some Democrats as well. Yeah. We're then going to talk about the carried interest loophole. We're going to do a deep policy dive, which sounds boring, but... Mm. I think it's still going to be interesting. Yeah, it's a kind of a case study. If you don't believe that corruption in Washington is a real thing, yeah, this is for you. <laughs> and finally, we're going to talk about euthanasia in Canada, of mm-hmm. all things. Yeah, it may sound, you know, like it's not that relatable to the United States, but we've talked about euthanasia before. We've talked about our general thoughts on on it, but like Canada's doing some weird shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i think it's 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 gonna it's gonna be an interesting conversation and you might learn some things that uh, will help hopefully guide your perspective in in policy pursuit pursuits in the future yeah speaking of pursuits in the future michael we have been in the middle of a pandemic and we have been pursuing mm-hmm. an end to it yeah but what are the current numbers so currently We've hit 608 million cases worldwide, uh, with daily average new cases over the last week of 628,000, which is down from 734,000 new cases per day the week before, or down 14%. Um, In terms of death, we've hit 6.49 million deaths, with average daily deaths over the last seven days of 1,800, down from 1,944 the week before, so that's down 7%. In terms of vaccination, 67.7% of the world's population has at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up again from last week, about two-tenths of a percent. Um, And so as a reminder on the vaccination piece, for a long time, it was like going up like barely a percent or a tenth of a percent like per week for many months. And then over the last few weeks, we've started to see it tip into two tenths and three tenths of a percent, which is, you know, doesn't sound like that much, but it's actually more progress than we're used to. In the U.S., we've hit 96.2 million total cases with average daily new cases over the last seven days of 67,000, which is down from 71,000 the week before. So that's down 6%. And then in terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 1.07 million deaths with average daily deaths of 271 over the past week, which is down from 289 the week before. So also down about 6%. Um, And then in terms of vaccinations, we're pretty much where we were last week. Um, About 79% of the U.S. population has at least one dose, which is up from 78.9% last week. And then in terms of the percent of people that are fully vaccinated, we're right about where we were. But overall, this is yet another week where pretty much every single COVID number has improved in terms of like their average daily rates. Mm. Speaking of things that are improving, Mm. Michael, 
Let's talk about student loan forgiveness. Man, I wish student loan forgiveness was an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but according to Republicans, it's just uh, it's just helping a bunch of rich people. Yeah. Well, we should. I yeah. I think so. This first segment's really aimed at, you know, last last week we talked about the student loan forgiveness proposal. Um, we talked about what's in it and some of the key strengths and any and some potential weaknesses. But since then, there's been just a ton of, you know, writing, argumentation, articles, podcasts, TV appearances, all pushing like a pretty similar set of pretty weak arguments. Yeah. So we wanted and to tackle some those. of which, some of which are just straight up. Yeah. False. Yeah. Like, just but most of which are incorrect. can be intuitively appealing if you're not aware yeah. of like the facts. Yeah. So the American Action Network, which is uh, which works with Republican House candidates, um, they released a 60 second ad in which they referred to the loan forgiveness as quote a bailout for rich kids, hmm. a bailout for rich kids. Uh, in the same ad, there was a um, there was a waitress and a lawnmower and an auto mechanic, and they were trying to portray them as being super like angry at the president's plan. And the auto mechanic said, "Quote: Want to be a struggling artist? College is on me. Enjoy hmm. your free ride." Hmm. So. Let's address both of those points. So the first point, is this a bailout for rich kids? So number one, no. Number two, it's a disingenuous argument for several reasons. Yeah. So first off, 87% of the benefits from this will go to people that make under $75,000 a year. Mm -hmm. All right? 87%. Yeah. This will in no way impact people that make... 125,000 for singles and 250,000 for couples. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It will not benefit people, a significant number of people that are making six figure salaries. Yeah. Which yeah. has been one of the big talking points that people against this have been making. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's it's an interesting kind of argument to make because what they're basically saying is this is not the most targeted way to help the poor, which is true. It's not the most targeted way to help the poor. And if that were an honest argument being made, being advanced by these kinds of ads, that would be an argument like that's that's fair. But the rea the, the reason it's so disingenuous is because they don't actually care about helping the poor. They care about making the they care about making it seem like Democrats are just in the pocket of rich people. To your point, Nathan, this is not going to rich people. So it might not be the best, the most targeted way to help the very worst off in our economy. It is a very good way to help like the middle class and lower class. Like it's not like no benefits are conferred on people that have very low incomes. In fact, a lot of benefits, as Nathan said, like, you know, not 87% go to people earning less than 75K. 75K is middle class, but that's 87% of the benefits. Yeah. Like the distribution benefits low income people as well. But importantly, this is a very, very good way to help 
the middle class. Yeah. Which is something that is like sometimes lost in progressive circles when we talk about trying to, you know, create a social safety net because it is a huge priority to help the poor. It's often lost in Republican circles because they don't seem to care very much about it. Yeah. Um, and so like it, it is, it, it includes, you know, middle class and people earning much less. And one thing to call out is like, um, not only about income, but in 2020, 11% of student loan debt payments were late or in default. Yeah. 11%. That's very, very high. Yeah. And so basically that's just money that you wouldn't have gotten back anyway. Well, yeah, that's money you would have gotten, wouldn't have gotten back anyway. Yeah. And it totally reduces the cost of this plan, but it's also a very strong indicator that these people are in desperate need of help because people tend to pay, especially like, especially their student loans, like when they can. And so if 11% of payments are not able to be paid on time or in default, that means that people are uh, really struggling. Yeah. And another thing I want to point out, it is really, pun intended, rich for Republicans <laughs> to be bitching about a, a program, a policy that supposedly only helps rich people. <laughs> so first off, it doesn't only help rich people. Yeah. 87% of the benefits go to people making less than 75%. Yeah. It has absolutely no benefits for people in the top 5%. Yeah. But and, and let's really, not forget. And, and really rich people don't have that many student loans. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Like the ultra rich, they don't have student loans. Yeah. All right. A lot of people that are relatively well off have student loans, but the ultra rich, they don't have student loans. Mm -hmm. On top of that. Let's not forget that this is the party that passed a tax plan, which, by the way, had like negative 2% approval. Mm -hmm. They passed a tax plan where 80% of all benefits after 10 years are going to go to the top 1%. And they have the fucking gall to claim that a policy that disproportionately helps lower income people yeah. is just helping a bunch of lazy rich people. Yeah. Like... Holy shit. Yeah, totally. And the other <laughs> point to be made here is is that the way debt and debt servicing like like the way a debt burden works, the way it makes sense is to think about it as a percent of income. Yeah. Right? So like, you know, if you're a bazillionaire, a $500,000 debt is nothing to you. If you are if you earn $100,000 a year or $50,000 a year, a $500,000 debt is you know, fiscal catastrophe, right? It's yeah. all relative. And so for something, a plan like this that has, you know, $10,000 to, to up to $10,000 for, for, you know, normal loan recipients and then up to 20,000, right? Up to 20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, the people that are most likely to be, uh, to be, you know, to have been low income when they come into college and likely to leave college lower income as well. Um, you know, a much higher you know, pay out for them, this as this help as a percent of their income, this reduction of their debt burden as a percent of their income is much more significant. Yeah. So to be clear, the argument that this is only helping rich people is bullshit. 
Now, the second part of the argument is this is only helping rich people, which that part's bullshit, at the expense yeah. of working class and lower class people. Yeah. That is also bullshit. Yeah. No taxes are being raised mm -hmm. with this. And in fact, we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Which annually is going to raise billions of dollars. And after 10 years, it'll be over $300 billion. Yeah. Which is more than the estimate put out by the White House for the cost of this plan, which is $240 yeah. billion over 10 years. Yeah. So there you go. So it's It's not, being yeah. paid for by rich people. Also, also <laughs> again, again, like that is an argument for progressive tax code, not an argument against a yeah. program like this. You know, like yeah. if you don't want middle and lower income people to pay more in order to fund government programs, have a more progressive tax system. And that's what that's what we got with the Inflation Reduction Act, at least in, in terms of the 15%, you know, minimum corporate tax rate and 1% tax on corporate buybacks. Um, and so it's a win-win. Like <laughs> we literally are like taking that money from a small number of large corporations that will be impacted by the 15% minimum corporate tax rate yeah. and turning it into debt relief for middle and lower income people. That's yeah, like exactly what governments should be doing. Yeah, your taxes are not being raised in order to pay for this. Yeah. All right. This is a top-down distribution, redistribution of wealth. Yeah. That is what it is. Yeah. All right? So it's a completely disingenuous argument. It's complete bullshit. Don't fall for it. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's one. Of, so not only that it's, you know, middle and lower income people that are going to be paying for the debt relief of wealthier people. There's a similar version of that argument, which is that people who didn't go to college or people who made better choices, quote unquote, better choices about their uh, student debt or their yeah. career paths or whatever, are, or the, even the people that have paid off their debt already are being penalized because yeah. of this program. So first of all, yeah. to Nathan's point, just laid out factually, that's wrong, right? Because we are... We have offset it by reduction in deficit. So there's no impact to our, essentially no impact to our, our def, or, uh, you know, government spending our deficit as a result of this. So it's not even like people in the future are going to be paying for this. It's literally just large corporations. Yeah. But aside from that, like even that claim that people who made like better choices or whatever, or paid off their debt, like there's like a few claims that are like part of that. One is that um, is like a general argument against welfare, which is like, why should I yeah. pay for things for people that, you know, to get benefits that I don't get? Yeah. Also, let me just point something out. Basically, what you're saying is so someone like me who doesn't have any student loans, you're saying, well, this guy right here, Nathan, he made the smart choice of being born into a family that could afford to send him to college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're saying. I mean, if you're first off, either if you if you don't have any student loan debt, all right, that means a few things. All right. 
And I mean, if you never had any student loan debt, that could mean a few things. Number one, you were born into a family that could afford to send you to college, mm -hmm. in which case you didn't do shit. That was just luck of the draw. Yeah. All right. Number two, you got a job while you were in college, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you did that, I mean, great. And I'm not necessarily saying that people in college should like should never get jobs. Yeah. But your 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 status in college should not be dependent on that. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many students I've had over the years that have had to drop out of college because they couldn't afford to do it. Yes. Or that failed classes in college. Yeah. Because they had been spending so much time working jobs in order to pay for college. Yeah. That has happened so many times. Yeah. According to one economist, 34% of borrowers over the last 10 years never completed their degree. Mm. Yeah. That's remarkable. People that made the investment and got no returns. Yeah. Right? And And... So, so that's like one like really strong point and like working. Yeah. To your point, Ethan, admirable to work through college, like yeah. lots and lots of people do it. Not a lot of people work. And I worked through college. I got out of school. I worked through college and I worked before college. I entered college with $11,000 saved up and I worked as an RA in college for a benefit of $5,000 a year or a semester, right? In, in terms of room and board. And I left school and, and I had the help of my parents and I'm an in-state student that went to a public university and I left school with $25,000 in student loans. Yeah. And I got scholarships. Like I did all of it. Yeah. And you still had student loans. Yeah. And also, also I want to point out another thing kind of about my own personal story. So I would not have been able to have time to do a job because I was extremely active on the speech team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what that resulted in? What me being <laughs> Your on current the speech career, team resulted in? my current career, <laughs> yeah. not just my current career, but paying for my graduate school. Yeah, totally. All right. Because I was an extremely active member on the forensics team. I spent extra time learning about public speaking, mm -hmm. um, yeah. working on events because I was able to do that. Yeah. I was able to get a full ride to graduate school, I was able to work in graduate school yep. with an assistantship, which gave me both a stipend, which, you know, side note, wasn't enough, yeah. but we were able to get by, um, and a full ride scholarship. So it was completely paid for. Yep. So not only were there no student loans for my undergrad because my, you know, I was, again, I was lucky enough to be born into a family where my parents could pay for it, yeah. but I got a full ride scholarship to graduate yeah. school and the very, because yeah. I didn't have to work in undergrad. Exactly. Yeah. And that wasn't and a guarantee. That wasn't a guarantee. Yeah. And that led me to the current job that I current that, that I have as a full time instructor. Yeah. Yeah. And and a and a coach for the speech team. That is where I'm at. Yeah. And that would not have happened if I had had to work in college. Yeah, exactly. And I think all of these things just go against that idea that like if you are saddled with debt when you get out of school, it's because you made a bunch of stupid mistakes. Yeah. And it's just it's when you phrase it that way it's just like laughably false. It's just so clearly there are 45 million people with yeah. with like thousands of dollars of of student loans. You think that many people just 
made totally stupid choices throughout college, even like, like I don't like, and, and if you think that's true, if you think that's true, right? Surely you don't think that many people are just stupid idiots, right? Yeah. Like if you think that's true, then you've bought into another key pillar of a reason why this, why we should forgive student let, debt, which is many times kids are sold a, mm. a bad bill of goods. Yeah. Right? Like, like what, we're, what we were told, I don't know about you, Nathan, what I was told, there was no option to go to college yeah. or not. I was going to go. Of course I was going to go to college. College was, yeah. is the path to the future. That's the yeah. path to earning money after school. It is yeah. the I mean, key. My, I mean, my dad's a college professor. Yeah. There, was, I, there was no way I was not going to go to college. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so like everyone is told all of our high school, like guidance council administration is to, like, we're tailored to SOLs and testing and like all of this stuff, you know, we take SAT prep classes and all of this is oriented towards getting more kids into college with no real plan aside from, you know, frugal parents or wealthy parents or whatever to help them pay for it and no real and no real guidance on whether it will be financially worth it. Yeah. Right. For example, a, a recent study revealed that four years after graduate graduation, the median earnings of those who graduated from, you know, open admission, minimally selective and moderately selective colleges in 2008, right? After they graduated, hovered around $46,000 a year, right? The study found that graduates from very selective schools, which much, which, with, you know, much higher costs of attendance and all that stuff, which we're all told to go to, right? We all try to get perfect scores on the SAT and do all the stuff in high school and stuff so we can get into the bigger, better, more expensive schools, those students from highly selective schools earned about $5,000 a year more than the people that went to other schools, right? Mm -hmm. But like no one would have ever said, go to a cheaper school. Like no one would have ever guided you, don't go to school. And the other thing is, so that's, that's one side of the argument, which is just as a 17 or 18 year old, looking at the future with a relatively underdeveloped brain, which is specifically bad at that stage at thinking about the long term, right? That's what we're bad at when we're that age, um, is, is being, is being said, is being sat down and said, this is the one and best path. And they're not given a lot of information. And if it doesn't work out, ah, that's on them. They fucked up. Yeah. The yeah. other thing is a lot of people, I've heard this a bunch more. I've never heard more advocates for trade schools than I have over yeah. the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Right. And, and the argument seems to go, or the argument seems to imply like everybody that goes to a four-year university is studying poetry and everybody that goes to a pace <laughs> goes to a trade school is, is studying to be the backbone of the American economy. And would yeah. never default on their debt because they're a good, upstanding, hardworking person. On average, trade school education costs $33,000. As much, <laughs> as, much yeah. as going to many universities. And yeah. students graduating from two-year and vacational colleges average about $10,000 in student debt and have default rates similar to four-year grads. Yeah. 
and a lot of people are making the argument about trade school as if Bernie Sanders Sanders did yeah. not also say that his plan for fully subsidized four-year college would not also include trade school. It did. His plan included that. Yeah. Progressives, they argue that both of them should be subsidized. Yeah, totally. That's 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 what we argue. Yeah. So so you want to bring up like, you know, well, you don't have to go to college. You can go to a trade school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Subsidize Great. that too. Yeah. I completely they, that's agree. The that's my point. Completely Nathan. agree. That's my point. You don't have to go to college. Go to a trade school. It's not a solution to student debt. Yeah. Students it's not. still graduate with a bunch of debt and default at similar rates. It's yeah. So that brings us to another argument that I want to address, which is uh, one made by our good old friend Teddy Cruz, mm. Cancun Cruz. <laughs> that is a fucking good name. That's a great it is. name. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, I can't Cruz. take. I I can't take take credit for that. No, that's that, okay. That was that was that was a that was a Twitter hashtag. That's okay. We'll just we'll just you know reference it in our resources if you want to find the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> so so this this wasn't this wasn't a tweet. This wasn't a tweet. This wasn't an interview. Mm -hmm. All right. So he said, um, he said, quote. If you are a slacker barista who wasted seven years Jesus. in college studying completely useless things, now has student loans and can't get a job, Joe Biden just gave you 20 grand. And basically his implication is um, that this is going to give Democrats a bump and it was just purely a political move. So I want to point out several things because there's a lot to fucking unpack there. Yeah. First off, I would like to take the opportunity to speak to any baristas who might be listening <laughs> and i know that there's at least one yeah i know i know multiple yeah um and i know several baristas if you are ever working in your coffee shop and ted cruz comes in and orders a coffee <laughs> just make it badly just make it super if he asks for a french vanilla cappuccino mm -hmm. like give him a i don't know like a um Mop just a water. black coffee. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like just be and, and it, when he complains, just be like, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just a slacker barista. Yeah. I don't know how to make coffee. Sure. I mean, just think about the utter contempt yeah. that this man has for the working class yeah. to say something like that. All right. To to shit on people that are baristas who are working class. Exactly. And that's the right? thing. It's not even like he said, if you're some four year person that, you know, can't get a job because blah 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 blah. He didn't. He said someone who's presumably working full-time, <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to, like, make their life yeah. work and, like, so, and yet yeah. is shitting all over them. It's it's the most elitist position. Yeah, so automatically, I guess a barista is is lazy, is the implication. If you're a barista, you're lazy. If you're a barista with student loans, you're lazy. Um, he also went on to say, quote, uh, maybe if you weren't going to vote in November and suddenly you got 20 grand, you can get off the bong for a minute and Jesus head down to the Christ. voting station or just send in your mail-in ballot the Democrats helpfully sent you. It could drive up turnout, particularly among young people. What's his point? You, like, what okay, is so, his point? <laughs> so, hey, Cancun Cruz, my buddy, let me explain something to you. The reason why young people don't vote for you is because you say shit like this, mm -hmm. okay? Maybe if you weren't such a shitbag to the working class, to young people, to struggling young people, maybe if you weren't such an utterly contemptible human being to the working class, to struggling folks, maybe, just maybe they'd vote for you. Yeah. All right? 
like the argument about this being purely for political gains, ultimately, even if it was, I don't give a shit. Sure. Because if you're a Republican, you are conceding the fact that there are a large number of people that are uh, whose lives are objectively being made better mm-hmm. by this. Yeah. And if you are against that, then you can't complain when those people don't vote for you yeah. <laughs> because you are actively not trying to make their lives better. I think that's it's not rocket science. Point. Oh man, that's so fucking funny. That's so hilarious. You mean I clearly helping people is a bold faced just payout to try to get someone to vote for you. Yeah. Great. That's aligned incentives. That's the exact kind of shit we would want to put in place. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas also, on the Ted Cruz side, it's like, well, clearly when people pay my campaign, lots and lots of money to speak on certain issues. And I do they're benefiting. They're getting a benefit from me, Ted Cruz. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, well whose incentives are fucked up here for the yeah. voters. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Also, let's address the whole useless degree thing. Yeah. Because we see this a lot. Yeah. Like there's this there there are certain sets of degrees that Republicans, that elected Republicans love to to trot out. Yeah. And and, and kind of point to them and say that this is the representation of where all of that student loan forgiveness mm-hmm. is going. Yeah. You know, and, and actually, not even just Republicans, Bill Maher made this argument. Yeah. Bill Maher, which, by the way, I'd just like to point out, there have been a lot of prominent political figures that have disappointed me in my life. You know, Kirsten Sinema yeah. comes to mind. Hillary Clinton comes to mind. I don't think that there's anybody who has disappointed me more than Bill Maher. Hmm. That's pretty remarkable because I considering you, he's not elected. He's not even an elected official, yeah. but he's he's a political entity, but he's not even an elected official. But the reason why is because when I was just starting to develop like a more independent political identity when I was in high school. Like I've always been political, but I was I was starting to become much more active in high school. He was a huge influence for me. Like, he was one of the first people, like the first prominent people, that number one was saying, it's okay to be more liberal than the Democratic Party. Number two, it's okay to be secular. Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah. And that was a very powerful message for me as as a kid. Like, him and John Stewart were huge influences on me. Mm-hmm. But of course, the difference is, John Stewart is now doing even more than he was when he was when he was a comedian. He's actually doing he's actually being an activist and actually making stuff get done. And Bill Maher basically went from voting for Bernie Sanders in 2016 to voting for Klobuchar <laughs> in 2020 and just becoming a standard democrat hack. And now he's just a straight up republican. Like now he's just acting like a straight up Republican. All of his segments are just shitting on young people and like shitting on wokeness, which is such a non-issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, do I agree that sometimes people go a little bit too far, you know, when it comes to trying to suppress the speech of, of idiots? Yeah. Sometimes they do. Do I sometimes believe that, you know, people make a mountain out of a molehill? Absolutely. Yeah. However, 
the fact that this generation has become a little bit more sensitive to issues of race, issues of gender, issue of issues of sexual orientation is a good thing. Yeah. Is ultimately a good thing. All right. So Bill Marsh has become a total fucking disappointment. And he actually sat there. First off, he made the argument that that college, that going to college is required to make more money, but then he called it a scam. He basically said that all these people are getting these useless degrees, which kind of flies in the face of his argument. And also, it creates two separate, like two separate realities, both of which still argue for student loan forgiveness. Yeah. All right. So so his 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 argument and Ted Cruz's argument create two separate separate realities that both argue for student loan forgiveness. Reality one is all of these people got scammed. All right. These people got scammed with their women's and gender studies degrees, you know, which they think is useless or with their I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they would think a comm studies degree is useless <laughs> or their, um, you know, their art degree is useless. They got scammed, all right? And now they're never going to amount to anything because they're not making any money. Okay, if that reality is true, that argues for student loan forgiveness. Yeah, exactly. Because it means these people got scammed, and they're never going to make that money up. Yeah, exactly. Right? So give them student loan forgiveness to make up for the fact that they got scammed when they were at a young and vulnerable age. But reality number two is these people went to college and became more successful and became contributing members of society. In which case, if we're arguing that going to college makes you a more, a more efficient member of society, if that is your argument, which again, I'm not necessarily saying that that's automatically true, mm -hmm. but if that's your argument, then that is also <laughs> an argument for student loan forgiveness. That's an argument for tuition-free college because that would make it so that people, regardless of where they grow up, regardless of their socioeconomic status, would be able to go to college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right? So either it's useless and a scam, in which case you should forgive student loans, or it is helpful and an investment, in which case you should forgive student loans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and, and like the whole useless degree thing, it's just like, well, so I even I even made like a relatively joking comparison about like someone studying poetry versus someone studying trade school. Not because I think poetry is a useless degree, right? Because I think all of these degrees, like even if it's not, even if it's literally not like economic value, although like lots of these degrees that they are lambasting are, like where yeah. the fuck would we be like without all the economic value from all of the fucking new material on every single fucking streaming service, which is all produced by people that studied like writing and stuff in school. Yeah. Right. Where would we be like the national sensation of like, uh, like the poet that spoke at Biden's inauguration, right? Like that is like elixir <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to us. Those things are incredibly valuable. And, and the fact that we, that it's difficult to make a living could have a, with off those kinds of degrees could have a lots of different causes, but certainly like making a less, you know, literate, less, uh, 
less like nuanced and cultured populace is not really the thing we're going for, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. not really progress. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, and I, and I want to defend higher education, a little biased. I'll defend but it. Thing- I'm not in higher education. <laughs> <laughs> but like higher education, like even if you're getting a degree, which these Republicans like to pretend is useless, you know, like a, a women's and gender studies. I have a lot of friends who are, are, have majored in that or have degrees in that or actively teach that. And here's the thing. Even if you're not into gender politics or identity politics or whatever, having a well-rounded view of the world, being given multiple different perspectives, multiple different theories for how our social organization is made up, helps us to think more critically about society. You see, one of the things that I think is lost in the conversation is that, yes, there are some classes that I took in my undergrad that were fucking useless to me. Sure. All right? That I, did, I didn't want to take. They were fucking useless to me. But there were also classes that I took that completely expanded my mind, that completely expanded my entire worldview and made me a well-rounded person, yeah. which also helped my ability to think critically mm-hmm. when dealing with issues at my place of employment. So what colleges do in general and i'm not saying that they do this perfectly every single time yeah but what they do is not necessarily teach you what to think but how to think for yourself all right because colleges oftentimes emphasize the need for critical thinking now again not always perfectly depends on the teacher depends on the department but that is an important skill that people need to know yeah even if they have a degree that is not on its face, like on its, you know, by its very nature profitable, there is still value in that. And so now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, I'm glad you asked. We do Tips for Good every week because... I'm cutting it loose, foot loose, kick off your Sunday shoes, jeez, Louise, throw me off of my knees, Jack, get back, come on before we crack, lose your blues, everybody's going foot loose. Jeez, you just know that? You didn't, you didn't have that pulled up. (laughs) I love that song. Jeez, wow, that's remarkable, man. And that's tips for good. <laughs> well, actually, it is kind of tips for good. Oh, that's kind of true, actually. That is true. Hmm. So, Michael, what what is our tips for good, tip for good this week? Well, our tip for good ties into our first segment, which is we have all of these people out there making claims about, you know, that there are certain types of study, certain types of professions, degrees, where you just can't make any money. And so if you go into those and you're doomed with student loans, you just deserve it which is obviously bullshit. We just walked through why that's bullshit. But the tip for good today is to go support some of those degrees. <laughs> go out there and 
if it's the lazy barista that Ted cruises after, go buy a coffee. <laughs> or and obviously this is subject to being able to, but like there's lots of theater out there that that all they're looking for is an audience. Much of it is free. You can go see free live theater and and support these people. You can um, you know, go see dance. You can pick up a book of poetry or just read poetry online. Like find a new poet and go read some. You know, like there's so many ways to support um, people that are, you know, not inherently struggling, but are doing jobs that are just critical, but not obvious. And, and I think, you know, in, in a time when a lot of those people might be like really caught in the crossfire and maybe feeling like they're like unfairly in the middle of things, it might be nice to go out and support them a bit. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we're going to talk about the carried interest loophole. And there's some important context around why we are discussing this specific thing, because this is a very specific loophole. And the context behind it is we are trying to look at this as a case study for how completely and utterly fucking broken our political system is. <laughs> and Michael actually is the one that originally suggested that we do this segment. And part of the lead in to, to doing the segment is that Michael was telling me that towards the beginning of doing this podcast, he was not always buying it when I would always bombastically rant about how corrupt literally everybody is. And, uh, so, so what's, has anything changed <laughs> since then, Michael? <laughs> Oh, well, I'm, I'm much more likely to believe it. <laughs> and, and part of the reason why I'm curious about this, why I really like this particular case study is because it shows the power and influence of corruption without necessarily having to buy into the idea that every single person in Washington is corrupt. Now, to your yeah. point, Nathan, like that is probably true, <laughs> mostly because it's not that hard to be corrupt. It's like a pretty yeah. easy thing to do accidentally it could yeah. literally be a matter of like you know you you, you could start off so innocently which maybe yeah. kirsten cinema did you know like yeah she I, did she used to be in the green party yeah <laughs> you could start off like yeah like i need to take these people's money for my campaign and when they give me a lot of money they expect to be able to talk to me but that doesn't mean that i'm going to do what they say yeah. but by giving them that differentiated access which they bought you can over time, you know, if you're not if you're lending your ear constantly to those voices and leaning subtly in that direction, you can totally change your worldview over time. And that's corruption, yeah. right? That's yeah. that's also corrupt. And so like the thing that I always was skeptical about is like that, you know, the US government is as, you know, like one, like, ah, can people really keep secrets? And the thing is, none of this stuff is secret. It's all open yeah. and out there, and that's how it stays open hidden. Open secrets. Exactly. That's literally the name of the website. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so that's that's one thing, like one piece of skepticism down. But the other second thing is it doesn't all have to be Cuba in order for it to be corrupt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, I kept thinking like, oh, it was a bunch of people in shady back rooms smoking cigars, you know, tanning no. each other big bags of cash and making policy. And I was like, that doesn't seem plausible. But the fact is that, Small corruption, which we'll see in this case study, is as effective 
at changing our policies as, you know, large scale yeah. corruption would be. Yeah. And this is why I find myself so impressed with politicians like Bernie Sanders or like members of the squad. Like specifically Bernie Sanders, because he's been in office since like, you know, the the Magna Carta. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like and yet he has managed to not be corrupted by the influences of Washington. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that is because he doesn't accept corporate PAC donations. Yeah. And that's part of why the squad, you know, despite the fact that sometimes you might criticize some of their some of their methods, some of their uh like some of their overall approaches to how they advocate for things, but they're not corrupt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can. It's, yeah, it's okay for people to just be wrong, right? Yeah. Like, wrong is fine. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they are wrong, but like, they're not corrupt. And interestingly enough, them not being corrupt seems to correlate with them holding correct positions more often than not. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why people like that are so impressive, but they're also super rare. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about the carried interest loophole. First off, before we even get to the carried interest loophole, let me talk very briefly about another really corrupt aspect of the tax code, which, I mean, this fact should not exist. And that is the fact that capital gains is taxed at a different rate than income tax. All right. There's a there's a cutoff at 20 percent. Now, to put that in perspective, the highest tax rate for the top income earners is 37 percent. Yeah. But capital gains for the top earners is 20 percent. Which means that if you are a billionaire that makes most of your money off of investments, which most do. Yeah. You are paying that 20% tax rate instead of that 37% tax rate. And again, you are only paying that when you sell your stocks. Yeah, totally. And you don't... And you can take out collateral. You can use your stocks as collateral to take out loans. Yeah, you don't need to sell your stocks and incur the tax penalty in order to spend that money. It's remarkable. So that brings us to the carried interest loophole. Well, Well, just really, really fast, like... Just in case anybody misses what capital gains tax is, that's when you have an investment of some kind and it change yeah. and it increases in value, right? You're and you're not taxed on the amount of the investment, you're taxed on the increase in that value, right? When you sell yeah. the stock, which is the actual windfall that you get, the actual cash that you get that is over and above the money that you put in. And so that's yeah. taxed, that little piece is taxed at a preferential tax rate. And when this was established in like nineteen thirteen Maybe that might have made more sense in terms of like a tax incentive for the economy when people, you know, when when the incentive was meant for people to invest in capital intensive projects, right? To invest in, you know, cap capital expenditures to like build new factories, which could hire a bunch of people and all that stuff. It's like it's a potential incentive that you could use to get people to invest in like building a prosperous and growing economy. The fact that that gets applied to the securities market makes no fucking sense. It's not at all an incentive that makes any sense. And to Nathan's point, like money, income is income. 
like why if you're yeah. just going to be making this income from a different source why would we tax it differently yeah exactly exactly so then that brings us to the carried interest loophole which is the fact that hedge fund managers most commonly on private equity funds are able to be taxed at capital gains rate yeah despite the fact that they're not the ones doing the investment yeah so so let's let's pause because there's so much stuff even in just that sentence so yeah a like a private equity fund or a hedge fund um they're they're not exactly the same thing but essentially they are managed funds or pools of money from investors right that they then uh, use to buy uh either controlling interest or with debt they use to buy businesses most yeah. often and typically what they do is they buy a business and they usually when it's distressed or something they change it all around make it profitable um and then they get to pocket that profit and often they'll sell it so that's kind of an ideal scenario, right? They buy a distressed company when it's cheap. They make it better. They make it more efficient. It produces more value in the economy. This is all good stuff. They create a bunch of value and then they sell it and they get to pocket the difference for their investors as a return. More realistically, actually, these companies will buy a distressed company. They'll fire a bunch of people, cut a bunch of corners, make it until it's a little bit profitable uh, and sell it or just sell its assets, right? Yeah. So not not like a really huge positive good actor in the economy necessarily but we're not here to talk about private equity funds we're here to talk about the fact that to nathan's point when the people that manage that fund right not the investors that provided the money but the people that manage that fund get paid right typically as a percent they'll get carried interest right as which is a bonus essentially a, a typically like 10 to 20 percent bonus on the profit from their investments, right? They return, you know, 10% profit on an investment to an investor and they take right off the top of that 10% a fifth of it for themselves, right? And so that money, which is literally their salary, right? It is literally the money paid for them for the services rendered of managing all of that investment is treated as if they had made the investment themselves and gotten a profitable windfall, right? They're literally managing, they're doing a service for somebody else, managing their money. And yet, when they get paid for it, it's not char it's, they're not taxed as if they were paid for a service. They're taxed as if they had made an investment, right? Yeah. Which, and this accounts for 84% of partners' total compensation, according to one survey. Right? So this is the vast majority of their compensation. This is essentially their salary. And to put it in dollar terms, so you have a sense of the fact that we're talking about the richest of the rich, this is typically a range, this carried interest portion of their compensation is typically a range between 10 and $100 million on average. That's the yeah. money they take home and the money that they're taxed at 20% instead of 37. Yeah. Yeah. Which is bullshit. Yeah. It's setting the income tax rate for the for these specific class of the highest earners at almost yeah. at just over half the rate of everybody else. Yeah. Which again, the capital gains rate shouldn't even be only 20% for the highest sure. earners. Yeah. But these people are able to take it's like a bullshit system on top of a bullshit system. Yeah. And 
interestingly enough, for the last three presidential campaigns, like, or rather three presidents, Democrat and Republican, yeah, Trump, Biden, Obama, all of them had as part of their platform closing the carried interest loophole. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. And yet it still exists. <laughs> yeah, they all It failed. still exists. Yep. And it still exists purely, purely because of corruption. Yeah. I, I, and I think I think critical to that point is is clarifying that there is zero functional purpose for this loophole, right? Yeah. Every argument that you hear, disingenuous argument that you hear a proponent make for this loophole is a lie. And yeah. there it's so obviously a lie that they know they're lying. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so so there's two main arguments for keeping the carried interest loophole that have been widely circulated by um specifically like private and private equity like trade groups and lobbying organizations which came about after a bunch of scrutiny on this exact thing in the mid 2000s so one argument is that these companies fund and invest in small businesses and help them grow so partially we dispensed with that a little earlier because we were like well actually the what they do is tend to like squeeze every drop of profit out of a business by any means necessary and that isn't always the best for the long-term health of the business. But even if that's true, that has nothing to do with the tax treatment of the fund managers, yeah. right? Yeah, So, like, like, like why should they get preferential treatment? Lots of people provide goods for the, the economy. Yeah. Like, and not just the economy, for, for the public. Yeah. Teachers provide good for the, for the public. Yeah. Should we tax them at 20%? Yeah. Like, like for, well, probably for the teachers, earners. but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, healthcare workers, you know, they provide a lot of good. Should they be taxed? Uh, should the highest earners of them be taxed at, at 20%? Yeah. Truck drivers, you know, why? Like yeah. there's so many other, uh, professions out there yeah. that provide plenty of good. Should all of them be taxed at capital gains rate? Yeah. The other thing about that is like, no one no private equity manager would go, you know what? I'm going to return less on my portfolio. I'm going to do worse <laughs> for my clients because I have to pay a higher percentage in taxes. Right? Like, yeah. like no matter what your tax percent, right? Yeah. You are still incentivized to make more money because you will yeah. make more money for every dollar more money that you make. <laughs> Look, who's that? Who's that millionaire out there? And these are millionaires. Yeah. Who thinks, you know what? I was being taxed at 20%. Now I'm being taxed at 37%. And if I can't get that extra 17%, fuck it. I don't want to be a millionaire anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. These are not just millionaires. Hedge fund managers were the first billionaires in the world. Mm. So like... Yeah, these are the wealthiest of the wealthy, and I think it, that's exactly the point, is that there's just no relationship between how well a private equity firm works and this tax treatment. Yeah. The second, And that right there, that argument right there, really, really quick, Michael, mm -hmm. that is the argument that cinema made yeah. to justify killing, yes. killing the inclusion of closing the loophole in the IRA. Yes. 
And yeah, the second argument they make, which I think she also made, is that some of the investors in private equity firms are institutions like firefighters, retirement funds, and things like that, that deserve good returns. But again, there is no world in which there is a relationship between how much return you get on your portfolio and how much your managers are taxed. They're already the highest paid managers. Like, it's not like they'd be like, it's not like we're like competing for talent and we're like, well, you know what? They might go somewhere else that pays them $2 billion. You know, it's just, it's just a totally unreal. And that's the thing. If they went somewhere else, they wouldn't be able to take advantage of this anyway. So there is just no like relationship at all. There's no foundation for these arguments whatsoever. So we know that when people make them, they are lying. Yeah. And the next question would be, okay, so as Michael pointed out, if these people that make these arguments, like Kirsten Cinema, if they know that it's bullshit, but they're still making the argument and yeah. they're still fighting to make sure that these hedge fund managers are taken care of because, of course, they're the most vulnerable population mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. If they are being taken care of mm-hmm. by senators. Why? Yeah. Why why does Kirsten Cinema care so much about hedge fund managers? Yeah. Why is why is why are our senators so ready to sign yeah. up for 14 billion dollars over 10 years less revenue? Yeah. And the answer is that one day Kirsten Cinema was just walking down the beach and she saw the sun <laughs> and she just had an epiphany that that hedge fund managers are people too. <laughs> now I'm just fucking with you. It's just corruption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Like, and Kirsten Cinema is not the first. Like, yeah. this again, as I mentioned, came around in 2007. To Nathan's point, every president has been like, has had this issue as part of their platform, like, since that time. You know, like 2010 and 11, Wall Street, like, Occupy Wall Street protests put a lot of pressure on it. 2012, Mitt Romney got in, in trouble with it. And then, uh, when he was running for president and had a lot of scrutiny. 2016, Jeb Bush, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton all talked about it. Trump wanted it as part of his platform and, and tax plan in 2017. Um, but the, Which would have been literally the only good thing in his tax plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, it doesn't take that much, which is, I think, a big part of this like case study. It doesn't take that much to kill any individual one of these efforts just yeah. you know in this case lobbying a trade group some ill-informed or disingenuous arguments to people in congress and trying to keep it as quiet as they can and just make it go away yeah in this case two million dollars yeah <laughs> so since this so according to open secrets since the 2018 election cycle she's it's kirsten cinema who by the way is a member on the Senate Banking Committee. Mm-hmm. She has raised $2 million from, from the securities and investment industry. To put that into perspective, Cheryl, Cheryl Brown, Senator Cheryl Brown, who is the chair of the Senate Banking Committee. So you would think somebody that the, you know, the uh, securities and investment industry would really want in their pocket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 770,000. Yeah. She's made over $2 million. Yeah. 
from from the securities and investment industry, according to Open Secrets. Yeah. That is why she's doing this. It's because they are paying her to do it. This is legalized bribery. Michael and I have spent a lot of time talking about corruption. And throughout the course of this podcast, I've been trying to hit home, hit home, hit home that corruption is not a Democrat issue or a Republican issue. It's a Washington issue. Yeah. There are people in both parties yep. that suffer, well, rather... <laughs> that, that benefit that, tremendously. <laughs> yeah, that benefit <laughs> tremendously from corruption. This right here is corruption. Yeah. Industry, special interest, puts money up for her campaign mm-hmm. to keep her in office. They give her money. In the form of super PACs, which we've decided are okay, but they're legal bribery. Yeah. In a world that made sense, something like this, something like this would be one of the biggest crimes imaginable. All right. The fact that special interests, people with a ton of money, can use that money in order to influence the votes of politicians to give themselves more free speech. All right. To give themselves more of a voice in Washington yeah, when they're the ones who are already benefiting the most from the current system in a world that made sense, this would be illegal. Yeah. This would be a crime. This would be bribery and anybody that committed it would be sent to prison because this is bribery. Yeah, it is. That's the thing. Like, and you like, it's hard to, it's hard to contextualize some of these numbers, right? Like $2 million. How much is that really? You know, how much is her, you know, how much does she take in usually? So the finance and credit industry is is uh is one of her top donors. She is she is she receives the third in terms of rank of anyone in Congress in terms of the total amount received from the finance and credit industry. They account for thirteen percent of her total like budget in twenty twenty two. 13% comes directly from the finance and credit industry. According to Open Secrets, similarly, global private equity firms, KKR, Carlyle Group, and Apollo Global Management, who are some of the biggest private equity out there, are among the 20 sources of donations, or the 20 leading sources of donations between 2017 and 2022. Like, it's $2 million, and it's a very pivotal two million dollars it's exactly the right amount of money to buy just enough all they needed to buy was a single vote kirsten cinema was willing to kill the the inflation reduction act a pivotal piece of legislation in the democratic agenda that will help millions and millions of people do more to fight climate change and the disasters coming in the future than any other bill in U.S. history, and she was willing to kill it. The only Democratic vote to kill it in the Senate, because that's all they needed to do to kill it, to kill this carried interest loophole yet another time. And now it's time for our favorite segment... Asshat of the week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Michael, we have a newcomer. Mm. Someone that we have never seen before. Really? Yeah. I don't know if that's a good uh, thing or a bad thing, honestly. 
<laughs> in this guy's case, it's definitely a bad thing. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> because seriously, fuck this guy. <laughs> so what is it, what, who is it? It is, uh, well, I guess he doesn't really have a title. Uh, I guess Republican candidate running for Oklahoma State House. I, I guess the title's a work in progress. Um, <laughs> Scott S. Oh, man. Scotty S., come on down. Great. Yeah. What did Scott S., some random uh, Oklahoma House District representative? Oh, wait. Running for the House? Jesus. <laughs> no, 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 no. State. Oh, house. thank God. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Just did the power to control the lives of people in Oklahoma. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> so what did Scott ask do to get on our show? Yeah. So um, this all started when a Facebook argument that he got into in 2013 started resurfacing in which he was commenting on uh, the Pope saying, who am I to judge gay people? You know, mm-hmm. who am I to judge gay people? Yep. Uh, he was responding to that. With uh, with Bible verses condemning homosexuality, specifically the ones talking about execution. And he was asked by somebody, we should execute homosexuals, presumably by stoning. And his response was, quote, I think we would totally be in the right to do it. Fucking that goes ag- <laughs> that goes against. Some parts of libertarianism, some parts of libertarianism, you know, <laughs> he killing pick people up for another being gay book goes against some parts of libertarianism. <laughs> um, he says, I realize I'm largely libertarian, but ignoring as a nation things that are worthy of death Fucking is very remiss. Jesus. Now, this was this was what he said in 2013. Maybe maybe he's reformed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, reformed like maybe, advocate for you know genocide of gay people yeah yeah give him the benefit of the doubt yeah give him the benefit of the doubt so so we responded in a youtube video to this recently when a a local yeah recently Hmm. um when uh, so a local news station reported his comments all right and in the video he was like does having an opinion against homosexuality make me a homophobe well, he said, yeah, well, it's that's simply, yeah, well, literally, <laughs> yeah. Li- literally, he said, quote, it simply makes me a Christian. Well, he's right on that, too. Right. And right. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. Not really. Yeah. It's just a in the video on the last one. In the video, he said, quote, he was not expanding the death penalty for homosexuality, but he denounced things that he, quote, viewed as obscene things homosexuals do. You know, he he decried it as the 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 bringing up of um of the old tweets as a hit job, like just just a hit job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always hate it when the, when the things that I've said have consequences. <laughs> but again, he defended it. Yeah, like he he didn't say like no, that is, is yeah. no longer my my view. How he dare said, you show me my opinion me that I Christian. still agree with and stand by? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he's not he's not saying that it should be like we should expand the death penalty to that, mm-hmm. but on a personal level, he clearly still believes that. Yeah, and again, he defended it by saying it simply makes me a Christian. He's like, you know, it, it was it was just this is just me having a view against homosexuality. You know, yeah, we should just be stoning him. To, difference them of to opinion. Death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worthy of death. Jesus I Christ, know. dude. It's so fucking ridiculous. Over the top. Like, oh my god. Like. 
And, and let me just point something out. If your argument is that it simply makes you a Christian to believe that gay people should be killed, good luck recruiting people for Christianity. Because <laughs> honestly, there's a reason why there's been a massive exodus of people from religion over the past few years, and it's because of shit like this. Now, I do want to point one thing out, all right? Not all religious people have this view. 100%. And in fact, yep. most don't. Yeah. Yep. Most do not have this view. And there are plenty of wonderful, amazing people that I know that are in my life, that I love, that are, that are religious. Some are very religious. Mm -hmm. And they, like, they would hear this and completely condemn it, and they would say that it, it absolutely does not make you a Christian because being a Christian is about loving your neighbor. And this is clearly not loving your neighbor. Lots of Christians believe that. But this asshole's version of Christianity apparently is stone the gays. And I would just like to point out, if that's what your if if that's what you think that your God wants you to do, then you are morally reprehensible for worshiping someone like that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> I'm like sorry. If some, what can if, I do? A powerful being told me to do it, which is exactly what people would say about the devil. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you like, got to make somebody. If some powerful being started speaking to me and say, "Hey, you should worship me," also kill some gays. I'd be like, "I am not going to worship you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a deep. And hearty congratulations to Scott Esk for being our asshat of, of the week. week. So for our third segment tonight, we are very happy. Segment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody loves talking about death, which this is <laughs> explicitly about. It's yeah. not super happy, but, but. It's not happy, but <laughs> but we're, we're specifically talking about Canada, which is happy, but then death in Canada, which is not happy. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so this has kind of come on the radar. Talking about healthcare in Canada, yeah, which is happy, happy but but like death healthcare, not happy. Death healthcare, which not happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a <laughs> kind of a tough segment, honestly. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> the, so so this came about because there's been like this story circulating, like recently um about a canadian veteran who you know was in treatment for ptsd and as part of the treatment options that were presented to him was the option to have uh to be euthanized have physician assisted suicide which is fucked up yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. like and so it's kind of sparked this like this interest certainly in me and, and Nathan when we were thinking about it in this topic and this like instance of euthanasia and physician assisted suicide in Canada in what seems like a like okay idea kind of gone wrong. Like we've we've yeah. talked on this show about euthanasia and assisted suicide as like a potentially like good thing to allow in certain limited yeah. circumstances to relieve pain and suffering and end of life care with and like maintain end of life care with dignity and all of these things. Yeah. And you know, we've also been very clear about the standards that would need to be in place yeah. in order to make sure that 
a system like that could not be coerced. Yeah. And look, places like Belgium and the Netherlands have had euthanasia legal for two decades. Mm-hmm. And they've actually had, they, they actually have a lot of safeguards. They have monthly commissions to review potentially cover, uh, troubling cases, um, which Canada does not. Um, they have, in, in Belgium, doctors are specifically advised to avoid mentioning euthanasia since it can potentially be misinterpreted as medical advice. This is all according to AP, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, in Australia, the state of Victoria, it forbids doctors from raising euthanasia to patients. Mm-hmm. There are no such restrictions in Canada. On top of that, on top of that, um, in Canada, patients are not required to have exhausted all treatment alternatives before seeking euthanasia, yeah. which is the case in Belgium and the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I just want to point out, this isn't to necessarily say that physician assistant suicide is automatically bad because it seems that within Belgium and, and the Netherlands, it has a lot of safeguards yeah. in order to make sure that it doesn't become coercive mm-hmm. or it doesn't become a financial, exactly like a, a financial yeah. get out of jail free card. Yeah. Um, there are absolutely safeguards. Yeah. And those safeguards are so important. Yeah. But the reason why we're bringing up Canada is because on this pod, we have advocated for a physician assisted suicide as a potential as a potential treatment with safeguards. But the way that Canada does it is so utterly fucked up. We yeah. need to talk about it so that if something like that were ever implemented on a large scale in the United States, that we would do it right. Yeah, exactly. Because in Canada, there's like straight up some Nazi shit going on. Yeah. And I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. So, so I'm not even really exaggerating. It's interesting because it's like it's like a real life non-fallacious like version of the slippery slope, which is kind of weird. Yeah. So in 2015, the Canada's highest court declared a law out uh, that outlawed assisted suicide. Uh, that 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 law deprived people of their dignity and autonomy, um, and it gave national leaders a year to draft legislation to govern physician assisted suicide. So that law. Uh, legalized euthanasia and assisted suicide in 2016 for people 18 and over who met certain conditions like having a serious condition, disease, or disability um, that is an advanced and irreversible state of decline and enduring unbearable physical and mental or mental suffering that cannot be relieved under conditions that uh, that the patient considers acceptable. And that their death also had to be reasonably foreseeable um, in order for this to be approved. And it had to be approved by two separate physicians in order for it to happen. So the exact kinds of, you know, basic rules that we would expect to be in place around a law like this. But then in 2019, a Canadian court ruled that patients no longer needed to prove that death was reasonably foreseeable. Right. So they've literally taken the part where it's essentially just changing the inevitable and taken away the inevitable part. Yeah. And then in 2023, it's on the docket that euthanasia will be 
expanded to become legal for disabled and mentally ill people and mature children. And, um, and so at this point, it's like a lot of these basic criteria have been removed. Yeah. And let's talk about that disability thing because hence yeah. the Nazi comparison. Yeah, exactly. All right. So keep in mind, there are no safeguards that say that doctors are not allowed to bring this up. Yes. As like, a, as like an option for people. That's what happened to means, the veteran. Would yeah. you prefer to not undergo treatment, to not exhaust your treatment options and actually have a, assisted suicide instead? Yeah. Yeah. So a, a person with a disability who is not terminally ill, like, and is not, inevitably going to die mm-hmm. could go to a hospital and have a doctor be like, Hey, you're disabled. That sucks. Want to die? Yeah. Like that type of thing is straight up out of the Nazi handbook, yeah. the whole life unworthy of life. Mm-hmm. The fact that some lives, disabled lives are less worth living mm-hmm. than others. Yeah. And and if you're saying and if you're if you're thinking well like how many times are there actually going to be doctors that coerce people or say anything coercive, well there was actually a case where there's this man named uh, Roger Roger Foley, who had a uh, degenerative brain disorder, he was in a hospital in London Ontario, and he ended up secretly recording some of the conversations that the staffers kept mm. having with him about euthanasia, and in one of them. In one of them, the hospital's director of ethics, all right, told him that in order for him to remain in the hospital, it would cost north of $1,500 a day. $1,500 a day. For him? And then, then for, 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 for Foley, because apparently uh, long-term care in Canada isn't covered by the single-payer system, which I was confused by. Man. Jeez. I was very confused. This is by. so that strange. Like this some is American exactly shit. the fallacious but, boogeyman that people talk about when they like blame yeah. universal healthcare. Like, well, they're just going to yeah. try to get you to die instead of spending the money. Yeah. And the the ethicist Jeez. went on to say, "Quote Roger, this is not my show. My piece of this was to talk to you to see if you had an interest in assisted dying." Hmm. He mentioned the economic barriers. Yeah. And that led into a conversation about maybe you should just die. Yeah. And what's funny is this was actually a concern that I brought up mm-hmm. even when we were advocating for physician assistant suicide. Yeah. The idea of people viewing this as a way of dying so that they don't have to occur medical debt. And the argument I made was you have to have a single payer system. Yeah. Apparently Canada's pretty limited. Yeah. So I might need to stop holding Canada up as a good example of a single pair system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, seriously. You know, but 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 the thing is, like, people are being, to an extent, coerced into it. Yeah, and they don't have to consult with the family. That's another thing. They don't have to consult with the family, and in fact, in a lot of cases, they don't even need to tell them. That the mm. person died because of euthanasia. Yeah. Like they don't have to tell the family that the person died because of euthanasia. Jeez. No safeguards. So, like, yeah. No safeguards. Crazy. 
That is dystopian That's shit. That's the thing. Also, like, Canada, at this point, you don't even have to have a doctor that administer, like, that, that does the procedure. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you could, it can be a fucking nurse. Yeah. It can be a nurse practitioner. And, like, I'm, all, yeah. I'm down for, like, the expansion of medical care beyond just doctors. Oh, yeah. But, like... Yeah, yeah. Nurses do so much. Yeah, I don't absolutely. Wanna, and I don't nurse practitioners nurses, are, like, most like, of the way there. But it's, like, this should be an exception. Yeah, we're like this should be like a la- a last resort, absolutely, and the and like, and you know it's not dispositive, but it's indicative that the removal of restrictions, um, yeah. you know, makes that less of a last resort. And to your point about like yeah. you know Canada doesn't have pe- like commissions that like review troubling cases, they don't even necessarily have reliable data on it because medical authorities in Ontario and Quebec, the two largest provinces instruct doctors not to indicate on the death certificate if people died from euthanasia yeah and yeah and and like their and health professionals are also specifically um advised that they should inform patients who might qualify to be killed as one of their clinical options this is like not it's it's their explicit instructions are not to frame it as a last resort but as just another good potentially good option yeah and dystopian shit yeah and like the crazy thing is so you might say like oh well how often does this really happen you know may as well <laughs> even to be fair that's a terrible argument because even one time when someone was coerced yeah, into assisted suicide is too many times and should you know not be allowed but yeah um but it happens a lot and more and more so uh in 2021 the last year with data 10,064 deaths by euthanasia were administered, which is the sixth leading cause of death in Canada. Mm. And that is... That is chilling. Yeah, that's crazy. That's up like more than like 30% from the year before. So 2020, it was 7,700. 2019, it was 5,600. 2018, it was 4,500. 2017 it was 2800 in 2016 when it was established when it was the first year that it was allowed it was 1015 deaths from euthanasia have increased 10 times since 2016 10x euthanasia should be the type of thing where like every single case should make you just it cry is, at how yeah. much pain the person was in it is like yeah, like every like, one in, is in, a in, failure <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. In order for in order for someone to have gotten to the point, like there should be so many safeguards in place for euthanasia that every single time it happens, like you should just cry when you think about what the person was going through. Yeah. Like it should be completely undeniable that this person was number one, going through pain and number two was gonna die fairly soon. Yeah. It should be just just undeniable. Yeah. It should be like it should be a case worthy of its own movie mm-hmm. basically yeah all right that is that's the like that's how many safeguards need to be in place yeah. for this so yeah and the fact that it's open to like the mentally ill like yeah. like the fact that you could be a person in like deep clinical depression wanting to get better and your physician or your therapist might come to you and say hey have you considered that maybe you could end it all yeah like Jesus. like that's Jesus. like going to someone with a with like a a newly broken leg and being like, Hey, have you considered maybe just cutting it off? 
Yeah. You're literally approaching them at the time that they might be most likely to agree to something that would be like a heinous limitation on the rest of their lives. Yeah. I know it's a cliche, but a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, it's, it's remarkably irresponsible. Yeah. So, I mean, I actually, I will tell you to an extent, this makes me feel a little bit better about the United States. It feels good to be able to <laughs> criticize healthcare know. practice in another country. I don't know. But like, the point of this segment, though, is there are many opportunities. If, you, if you're if you someone that does agree with physician-assisted suicide, there's a lot of opportunities for it to become dystopia. And that is something that you really should keep in mind and be aware of. With any policy, mm-hmm. with any policy, no matter how good the policy might be, there might need to be some limitations on it, some safeguards on it. And you should always approach every single policy problem with the specific intention of, here's a problem, what is the right solution, and how do we implement it in a way that, number one, solves the problem, number two, doesn't create collateral damage. Canada clearly did not do that. Yeah. So as it seems, the physician-assisted suicide has been gaining some traction in terms of advocacy in the United States. Mm-hmm. If that does, if that trend does continue, be warned. And now it's time to end our show, as we usually do, with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight is the fact that I'm just so glad to be back teaching. <laughs> you know? That's I awesome. I missed it. That's awesome to hear. And I just, you know, like I, I'm, I, I'm, it's the beginning of the semester, so I'm still at the point where there isn't a lot of grading on my plate. And, you know, I finished most classes with a bounce to my step because it's just, it's just so fun. It's so satisfying. I love teaching. That is awesome. What about you, Michael? What's what's your highlight? My highlight is perspective, as they often are for me. I'm a big uh, looker forward or to the future. Um, <laughs> and for me, it is that this weekend, I'm actually going to get to see Taylor, my twin brother, my, old, my uh, third oldest brother, Chris, and Taylor's partner, Scout, who's in, and Taylor, uh, I think Taylor and Scout have been on the show. I don't think Chris has yeah. been on the show. I think. Has it? no, he has. He has. He has. You weren't there. You weren't there that day. Him and uh, um, you're him and Gabriella. Gabriella. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So they've all been on the show, and I'm gonna get to see them this weekend, and so it's gonna be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so with that, we'll thank our incredible patrons for making the show possible. So thank you to Jerry Deviller, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen. And to you, dear listener, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again 